Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 64. We're glad that there are people who are still listening. Confused, but definitely glad. <laughs> Them or us. <laughs> both, well, probably both probably confused, ways. you know. If you're not confused, then you're doing something we're not. Speaking of confusion, <laughs> you know, here we are recording on Saturday, and uh, the infrastructure bill has, has finally passed the House, is going to to Biden to be signed. I believe he's going to sign it sometime today, so by the time you're listening to this, it'll be old news that the infrastructure bill will be will be signed into law by President Biden. I am assuming he's going to sign it, Dan. Hopefully he's not having second thoughts. It would be really funny if he didn't. I don't, I... Of course he'll sign it, but he really wants. But some to days see, he wish that he really wants to see if he can get his approval rating into single digits, and he figures not <laughs> signing his own bill would be a great way of doing that. He's close enough that now he should go for a record. It's kind of like like I've I've took all the points in this game already. I should shoot the moon. Right? Try try and get them all. Uh, yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> this this bill. We have been trying to track down just a few details on it. This is not the main thing we're focusing on for this episode. But this bill, I, I just wanted to know how much it cost. And, and not even like, not even how much it will really cost, right? Because actually the way the political processes work, you will never know that. Yeah, the actual cost is is impossible to calculate. And there are a number of reasons for that. The The way they... They calculate the costs is is regulated. There are certain rules, you know. It's over. Mm-hmm. They only look ten years into the future, and they and they do these different calculations to see how much is this going to actually cost in a reasonable amount of time. But there are things that you know because you know those are the regulations. There are things that lawmakers can do to circumvent that. You know, some of those things is they can have delayed provisions that take longer, and so they cost less on paper because of how they count money going forward in time. They have uh, sunsetting provisions that they know will pass, which means that after a certain number of years, the the law will disappear unless it's renewed. They know it will be renewed, and so by having a sunset provision, they only have to calculate those years before it sunsets, and other things like that that allow them to fudge the numbers on what the actual cost is. But all of that aside, all of these costs are not set in stone. These are estimated costs. These are Mm -hmm. beliefs, really, of how much it's going to cost. They're, They're educated guesses, absolutely. And so those guesses are not always right in varied ways. And since these bills are so massive, it becomes impossible by the time all is said and done to know exactly what it costs. But that's not even what we're worried about here. (laughs) What we're worried about here is the fact that if you go and you look up this infrastructure bill, CNN is going to tell you that this is a $1.2 billion, uh, 1.2, excuse me, trillion dollar infrastructure package. That has five hundred and fifty-five billion in spending, and you're like, "Wait, what?" Here, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it from <laughs> CNN. Congress passed a one point two trillion dollar or trillion infrastructure package Friday, approving a signature part of President Joe Biden's economic agenda. It will deliver five hundred and fifty billion of new federal investments in America's infrastructure over five years, 
blah, 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 talking about all the different areas it's going to affect. You're like, oh, okay, well, maybe they're just not including the other, you know, 500 billion. You're like, maybe. Then you go over to NBC, and NBC is just calling it a $550 billion infrastructure spending bill. And then you've got AP News just calling it a $1.2 trillion infrastructure spending bill. And then you go to the Congressional Budget Office, and they talk about how much it's going to cost. And they're throwing all sorts of different numbers in there, anywhere from $400 billion to $700 billion over 10 years. <sighs> it's I don't know. I don't I, honestly I don't know, know if anyone knows... Not even what it's going to cost, which no one knows, but even the estimate of what it's going to cost. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And in these bills, we we ran in you know this in these articles about the bill. Right, the the actual grunt work here is to go through the bill and to make estimates and to assign values and those kind of things. Right, that's what the Congressional Budget Office and company do. Um, and then there's the grunt work of the the reporting groups that have to then comb through those numbers, compile them in ways mm-hmm. that they think are useful, mm-hmm. right? And and it seems like at both levels, things are just weird. Just I don't know if it's a failure to understand what I want to know. Like like sometimes, and maybe I, maybe we're having unfair expectations of what an <laughs> article should present. You know, like like if this is a 1.2 trillion infrastructure package. I would like a rough idea of where the money's going. Not just 500 billion of it. Yeah, because it, it then you get to the end of this article from CNN that gives you a breakdown of the 550 billion that's going into infrastructure, which is the most confusing thing ever because this is <laughs> so $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill with 550 billion going into infrastructure. But then it gets to a section called What's Missing? The bill leaves out. That's this is their words. The bill leaves out and then it lists three different things with costs associated with it. But you know what else leave, this bill leaves out, Brad? What else does it leave out? Everything that's not in it. <laughs> right? By definition, what's not in this bill is left out of this bill. No, but but it also makes sense because the last time we talked specifically about this infrastructure bill, which was a while ago, this has been in the works for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was supposed to be $2 trillion, you know, split between two different bills. And and now it's turned into either a $550 billion or a $1.2 trillion. And so it makes sense that Biden, Biden planned to do a lot that he's not able to do. And I think that's what CNN is trying to highlight there with the what's missing. Because you're right that everything... That isn't in the bill is not is missing, but specifically right. there were things that I think Biden said he was going to get done that he's not going to get done. Yes, 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 which makes some sense, right? But in and that's this is where the simple question that I feel like that should be answered in this article that isn't is this stuff that's missing a subtraction from the one point two trillion, and that's why we end up with something less than that in some of these other articles. Is this this is the one point two trillion dollar infrastructure bill that now has had several things removed and is actually going to cost less than that, or is this the one point two thousand you know two trillion dollar infrastructure bill? And these are some of the things that they used to talk about when mm-hmm. they were talking about the infrastructure bill back when it cost more. 
You know, like it, <laughs> the, the the money they they throw around money in every paragraph without ever making the big picture of how this comes together and what's here. <laughs> you know, like what, yeah, what where the cost is. It it never lines up in any reasonable way. There's never any. It's never even mentioned, really. It's just kind of like, here are some of the things that are in it. Here's some of the things that are not in it. Which is fine, but it seems to be trying, this article also seems to be trying to do more than that. And this is what all of the articles are like. Like, it's a confusing, it's, it's, a, it's an accounting mess <laughs> when, when what you want to know is, like, were those things just cut from it? Mm-hmm. Is it actually going to be $1.2 Why is it that some articles are labeling the total cost is less? Why is it that CNN's only giving us the five hundred and fifty billion in a breakdown of that? Mm-hmm. Right? These are these are questions that they don't begin to answer. No, and, and for reasons that I just that, find upsetting. Questions that are important, you know, when you're looking at this bill that just passed, you know, those are questions that are worth knowing. You know, I mean, because if it is, if the bill is just a five hundred and fifty billion dollar infrastructure investment that's purely for infrastructure. That is a very different story than a one from one point two trillion dollar bill that half of it is going to infrastructure. You know, it's yes. something something that's interesting. You know, we were looking at this bill, and we're also we've also looked at the uh, the other social spending bill that that Biden has been pushing and that the the progressive left has been pushing. You know, it's interesting that uh, that this infrastructure bill almost didn't pass because some of the more progressive in the Democratic Party. We're holding this bill hostage so that they could get their other $1.75 trillion uh, spending bill passed as well. They didn't want just the infrastructure bill. They wanted both to pass. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, AOC and the the so-called squad, the, the six um, members, and I can't name them all. Obviously, AOC is the most famous, didn't vote for this infrastructure bill. So they still held out. You know, they stuck to their guns. And saying we want both or neither, but the rest of the mm-hmm. Democrats did cave in, and then of course you had thirteen Republicans who voted for it, which is why it was able to pass. So it was actually bipartisan. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is just one of those those two bills that we've been tracking. And as people are tracking these bills, you know, Biden keeps talking about his plan. He keeps talking about Build Back Better, which everyone kind of just assumes is talking about the infrastructure bill. You know, Build Back Better infrastructure Mm -hmm. it makes sense that's what i thought it was i thought the build back better bill was the infrastructure bill it's not build back better is the social spending bill and the infrastructure bill is not the build back better even though it's part of his build back better plan don't get confused because we already are (laughs) but as a as a layman who's trying to who's trying to follow this you know i'm I I don't have the inside scoop on what's happening in D.C. You know, I don't have any connections who are explaining this to me. I'm just absorbing the same information that everyone else has access to. And I can tell you, it's not, it's not simple. Understanding what is happening with these bills is not simple. You know, you get what CNN tells you and, and that's about it. And it's not that helpful. It's not. Yeah, it's not particularly helpful. It's interesting. I like... We were joking before we started when we were at the peak of our frustration. We were what we were looking for a simple, clear article to maybe mention a few things about about how much of this is like kind of the bipartisan infrastructure stuff that we expect 
passes through pretty easily and how much of it isn't. You know, what, what extra things are in here? Because there will be extra things. There are all, there's always extra things in bills of this size, um, which is all of the bills at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but All of the major but, uh, ones. I was so frustrated just trying to find basic information about it that just isn't being mentioned. And I don't see like a lot of spin in what is reported. You know, I don't see a lot of like, uh, you know, the, the ones, the articles we've mentioned are, are pretty straightforward in what they're explaining. They're just not explaining much and what they're explaining. They're not explaining well. And so it's just, it's, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, it's, it's complicated, but it's not complicated because it should be complicated, right? Because there's, it's complicated because the news is, is not doing a good job. The congressional offices are not doing a good job because the, the way the government spending is at this point is a, is a mess. And because any attempts at accounting are almost futile in terms of anything but the, the, uh, you know, extremely rough estimates. We were joking about how there's a, there's an agency whose job it is, is to keep track of other government agencies. And it has reported consistently that it has been unsuccessful in its task, which is to say it can't number and name all of the other agencies. That, it's a level of, (laughs) it's a level of, of failure at such a basic level. Right. We we don't know. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know what their budgets are. We don't know what powers they're exercising. And the agency that's supposed to doesn't know either. Mm-hmm. No one knows. It's, it's, it's just it's like knowing how much a bill's gonna cost. That's just unknowable at this point. It's unknowable and it's and it's yeah. Yeah, and we've made it worse in a variety of ways over the years. Um, it used to be that, you know, you'd have a budget and certain things were allocated for, you know, you'd re- you'd allocate a certain amount of resources for certain tasks. And so once that money was gone, it was gone. Um, but now it's like we say, we're going to do something. And once it's done, whatever money spent is spent. And so it's like a, it's a weird reversal of accounting. It's, it's, it's not, there is no accountability in this form of accounting. It's a, it's a complete lack of accounting, really. Accounting is root for, you know, account is the root of accountability and accounting for good reason, because you're giving some kind of uh, a report of what's what's being done, and it's just that our government is failing is failing failing is failing at the most basic level of financial management right? across the board. It's it's a it's an incredible failure at the most basic financial principles. Well, and and. <laughs> And speaking of failure, I mean, we weren't planning on talking about this, Dan, but I've, I've been thinking about it, and I've been thinking about this infrastructure bill and the fact that it's almost unilaterally opposed by conservatives, and the conservatives have been pushing back against it in almost every way, shape, and form. And I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking about at least the official purpose of the bill and the official $550 billion that's being spent. And I'm wondering why conservatives are so opposed to it. You know what I mean? Because, because me personally, as, as someone who's obviously not in favor of government spending in general, you know, I'm, I'm never a fan of government spending, but, but any good conservative will tell you, you know, which I am not a good conservative, will tell you that the government does have a role. 
Otherwise, you know, they would be anti-government, but the government does have a role. And one of those areas that it does have a responsibility is things like roads. You know, that is the government's <laughs> responsibility. These interstate freeways need to be maintained. You know, the the infrastructure in the United States, you know, the, the Society of uh, Civil Engineers or the American Society of Civil Engineers. I don't know about any other society. I'm sure other countries have them. But they gave it a C minus <laughs> score, the nation's infrastructure. And so clearly there is room for improvement. And so why wouldn't conservatives be interested in improving in infrastructure? And the reason I keep coming back to, and I'm and I know what conservatives would say. Well, they'd say, Oh, well, there's there's stuff about zero emissions and and funding for, you know, electric cars and and internet that we don't maybe may, maybe agree with or blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, but that's not how your argument against the bill was presented. You didn't say, hey, let's amend this and get it where we need it. You said, no, this bill is crap, which is mm -hmm. different. You know, it's different than saying, hey, we agree with the idea, but let's let's change it. No, it was, no, we disagree with this bill fundamentally. And the reason I think it was fought so hard by Republicans is simply because it's a great way to sabotage the Democrats by opposing yeah. this bill because when this bill passed it was a win for democrats and it just seems political to me it really just yeah. seems political the reason only 13 republicans voted for this i think many more republicans would have voted for it if it weren't for the fact that it's a democratic bill and being pushed by a democrat president who they are leveraging everything they have to gain as many political points as they can and one of the best ways to do that is to make them look incompetent it is. It's very effective, and they look very incompetent. They really do. <laughs> this, this bill has polls, not gone well for the Democrats. Right, and the polls reflect that. People people think they're incompetent. Democrats think that Democratic leaders right now are incompetent in, in staggering numbers. Um, it's, yeah, it's interesting, and it's as you said, so much of it's a show. Um, certainly, under Trump, they passed bills like this mm -hmm. regularly. And, this was, and they had is, no problems nothing, with them. Right. No, and that's what I was trying to say, and maybe I went a long way to say no, it. No, you did. You did. Yeah, you, you, you did say that this is, this is in principle, while, while the details will always be controversial, mm -hmm. and there will always be things in there, um, if you're getting any bipartisan votes at all, if you need any bipartisan votes at all, there will always be things that the party doesn't like. Um, but yes, in, in principle, the Republicans are not opposed to this kind of bill. Um, in fact, they're great advocates of it. The Republican Party was founded on in part on the idea yes yeah. of of that was need to modernize america right right that's a it's an aspect of of the republican party that has a that goes back to the very beginning that they were they were about the modernization the new roads the new infrastructure the the shiny new uh things that they could they could use to improve the country's economy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's why it's why the progressive party came out of the republican party Right. It's why the that's why you get Teddy Roosevelt and company and their their desire to uh improve infrastructure and the economy in all kinds of ways came from the Republican Party initially. Anyways. Enough of that. <laughs> There's our two cents that turned into twenty minutes on the infrastructure <laughs> bill. To turn turned into several dollars worth of uh <laughs> uh the other big thing that happened is the the mandate has finally been been officially released by OSHA. It only took them, how long has it been? Five weeks, six weeks, too many weeks to count. It feels really long. 
feels really long since we initially talked about it. And then we mentioned it again lately because, because it's, people are acting like it's out there already when it wasn't. And now it is out there. Now it's finally happened. And the timing of it is the, the thing that's most noteworthy. Um, it happened right after the elections. Every November, there's important elections. This year, important elections were uh, mostly state-level stuff, right? No congressmen up, no senators up. On odd years, they never are. So they waited until right after, right? And then imposed the mandate. It was, it was the day it was after, strange right? strange coincidence, for sure. The day, two, day, two, two days, days after, after. Two days after. Tuesday to Thursday. Two days after, this is your this is your weekly reminder that most of politics is a show right now, and most of it is aimed at most of it is aimed at getting at the national level. Most of it is aimed at how people will perceive it and how it will affect their voting, and that is that is one of the fundamental things that is calculated in every action at that level. You know, and it's uh... can you hear me? I can't. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, I, I muted because there was a jet flying over. They're not supposed to fly on Saturdays, but here they are. Um, now I forgot what I was going to say. I'm, I'm distracted, Dan, because not only are there jets flying over, but I'm looking at our show notes. And once again, you have failed to spell OSHA correctly. And it's, it's, I just, I, I hate to throw you under the bus like this, but I'm just you staring know, at it. And it's all I can think about. Let me explain, because what I remembered from our last time when we, we encountered this problem, right, was that it's not like it's ocean. It's not like ocean. You're right. And so I was like, I could look this up, but I'm just going to take a stab at it, right? <laughs> I still don't know what it stands for. I still don't care. I, <sighs> I still, uh, it, it wasn't worth looking up what the acronym actually is spelled like. But you knew what it was, so... As far as I'm concerned, my notes were sufficient here. <laughs> you thought but it's not so. like if, even if it were an English word, it's not like its spelling would mean would something matter because English words are spelled almost randomly. And it in wouldn't. A lot of cases. And it wouldn't matter. I just, I just can't help it, Dan. I can't help it. Uh, How is it actually spelled? It's O S H A, not I A. You know, you were H A. You were so close, so close, Dan. Turn the eye on its side. I pick the other way that you get shh in the English language. Anyways, what I was going to say about uh, about what you were saying about the election is that the thing is, is the vaccine mandate one of the other ways is very good for conservatives politically, you know, in terms of this show, this game that's taking place because conservatives are not in favor of the vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. Even conservatives who have gotten the vaccine, which is a large number of conservatives have gotten the vaccine. They're still strongly opposed to the vaccine mandate. And so that's something that's definitely going to hurt the Democrats. And if they had released it a week ago, it would have hurt them in the elections. And they were already hurting in the elections as it was. You know, the conservatives did very well in this election. Yeah, I don't know if we've mentioned that. This this election went as poorly as it <laughs> as, as any election I've heard of. Um, so one of the things that's worth noting in these election cycles is that this this election by just the way the moment political momentum works, this election usually goes against the incumbent. Um, and that's, that's just the way it works. The, the midterm elections, the next election usually goes against the incumbent. 
Um, at the four year one, they may rally. Yeah, and, and take back. And there's things. a there's a simple reason for that. It's because when your party is in charge, <laughs> you uh you you know that that the bad things aren't going to happen, and so you can check out of politics a little bit. You know what I mean? You can kind of ride that high as you know an individual citizen, and so you're not going to worry as much about the the midterm elections or the annual elections, but. When your party is out of power and the evil party has the power and the evil party is destroying the country, then you are mad and you have to do everything you can to 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 fight back. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> think back to, to 2020, you know, and and how just how happy the, the Democratic politicians were. You know, they didn't say they were happy, but you could tell how happy they were with Trump because it gave them so much fuel and so much momentum from their constituency that they were able to use. And that's the same thing that conservatives have been doing over the past few months with Joe Biden ever since he started fumbling the ball. They've taken advantage of everything they can to use that momentum, to use that underdog mentality to go for the win. And it's worked. Yeah, it has. It has worked. It has worked. Uh, one of the other difficulties of being in office with your party is that you now have to do the things you said you were going to do. And it never works out. And it, it never, it never works out like that there have been there have been few presidents for whom it has ever come close to working out really um i think fdr is the only one who comes to mind as someone who just like accomplished everything he wanted to do there are a few others but very few and, and it's extraordinary circumstances and it's just it just the stars almost never align no and a very and in simple, practice a very simple example of that that i've used before is is joe biden with uh with covid19 you know Joe Biden kept saying, you know, Trump has completely fumbled our COVID-19 response. If I were president, this never would have happened. When I become president, COVID is going to be stopped. It's going to be eradicated. I'm going to fix it. And then he got into office and realized it's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah, it turns out he has very little, little he can do about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's in some ways there's an inherent problem in that politicians run on promises. And they're not penalized for giving promises while they're running, mm -hmm. right? There's no, there's no, you can't hold them accountable for promises which they have made, which they have never had the opportunity to keep. And so they have no reason not to promise high things. There's no, there's very little reason to be, to show restraint. Um, in, unless that's the kind of thing that people are looking for. And hopefully people start to look for that, look for someone who's like, you know, I'm going to try this and it probably won't work. <laughs> that's that's the, Daniel for president, right? Dan for president. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to do everything I can to do X, Y, and Z. And I doubt we'll get X, Y, or Z. But if we're lucky, we might get half of one. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's usually not what people are looking for, though. That probably is what they should be looking campaign. for. Yeah, the, the, uh, <laughs> that would be hilarious. We should try that sometime for the record. Um, but, but yeah, you promise things you promise in, in essence, what you promise is more benefits and lower taxes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? You'll, the, you're, you're going to, your world's going to cost less and you're going to get more things. And of course the two are in opposition to one another. You've got, you've got immediate problems of satisfying that. And so it's, it's difficult. So yes, we expected it to swing back against Biden. But things swung back so 
hard. Yeah, and so, so quickly. That, and so quickly that if you, I, I've seen a number of Democratic outlets saying, you know, this is what we expected. This is the, this is the normal pushback. It's not. It's the normal pushback. This is, a, this is not the returning wave of momentum. This is a tidal wave that has swept through a number of states and their legislatures. You get, you get my favorite story. This has been repeated several times, which is so funny to me. <laughs> was the guy who ran against the, in, in the state legislature, it was the state Senate president. Um, and a random guy joined the, you know, started running against him as a Republican. I think he was a truck driver. The, he's a truck driver. He spent like $200, 150 to 200 150 something mm-hmm. on his campaign running for a state senator. And he won. Why? Because he was not a Democrat <laughs> and he was not that other guy. Right. This is, this is the, this is a fluke of the highest level. Mm-hmm. Now it's uh, almost the highest level. I guess if that happened at the national level, no, that then, would be insane. Then you would, <laughs> where usually insane. people are, it's millions of dollars. But, but even there, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of level where, where states, State governors are being replaced in areas that are solidly blue with Republicans. It's, it's a pretty massive backlash. And if the momentum doesn't shift, luckily, luckily the president, if you're a Democrat and you want Biden to be in office, luckily for you, the presidential election's not for several years mm-hmm. and a lot mm-hmm. of things can change. Nothing is set in stone, but right now, Things are really, really bad. Yeah, and in terms of in terms of of politics, you know, our memories are not very long, and so <laughs> so it's totally possible that three years from now, you know, Biden could completely turn around his image and and win the election handily. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know for sure. There's going to be ramifications for the midterms. You know, a year from now. Yes. You know. One year is is probably not going to be enough time. It, it may get better, but I think it's been bad enough these past few months that people are going to remember, and there's definitely going to be a cost in those midterms. And yeah, and the I danger so I think for for the Democrats is is if is if they lose those midterms handily, they may be they may be sitting there for the next two years unable to do anything which would not help them look better. And then, you know, when you have the next presidential election, they could be really hurting, you know, and that's, and that is the, you know, the worst case scenario for them, I think, is that they, is that they can't ever get that ball rolling, that momentum again, and they just flounder. Yeah. And and it wouldn't take much in the midterm because they, they never did have a massive majority. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Senate's Mm 50-50, the House is... Uh, I don't know what the margin is, but it's not, it's, it's relatively small for the house. Yeah. So you've got, you, you have tight things already. And the, the next elections for the house are very favorable for the Republicans, mm-hmm. which means the Democrats up for election are Democrats in areas where it's hard for them to keep their seat. And so a, a small momentum well, shift. Well, the house, they're to- all going to be up for, for reelection. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Did I say House? Yeah, I think you – but you meant the Senate, right? I believe I meant the okay, Senate. Yeah. Well, let's see. The House is – Because the House is every two years and the Senate six. So the, the Senate yes. is rotating. So a third yeah, a third yeah, of the Senate sorry, will yes, be up yeah. for election, for re-election in next year. 
And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely. And right. that yeah. third is is going is contested. That's what you were saying, right? Yes, I apologize. That, yes, it is the Senate. You're right. That third mm-hmm. that's coming up is is going to be contested. Yeah, because they stagger them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a six year term, but they stagger them one third of them every two years. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. You're right. No, I, I I knew I knew that's what you meant, but I just wanted to yes. clarify yes. for the audience. Yeah. Um. Which brings us to the the substance of the discussion we want to have is is about the various political factions within the political parties because that's what we're that's what you're seeing playing out here. Mm-hmm. You have a relatively united Republican group who just is trying to make Biden look bad, right? The, the things Brad was saying with the bill, where the bill is <laughs> the Republicans are opposing it in part because it reveals the the fract the factional lines within the Democratic Party, where you have the progressive caucus who wanted both bills, and then you have everybody else who's willing to pass just the one bill to pass something, mm-hmm. right? And the progressive caucus is like, no, 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 no. You promised both. Mm-hmm. We're going to do both or we're going to do neither. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the progressive caucus backed down. Or and some I think of they them backed back down, down. Yeah. Some of them backed mm-hmm. down. Enough of them backed down. Um, and enough of them backed down. Uh, I've got to think it's in part because they can see the writing on the wall with the polls and things <laughs> that they can see this, these, this recent election that happened. That and, if, uh, if your, if your proposal is both or neither, you're going to end up with neither. You're going to end up with neither and you're going to end up also throwing national elections because of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, a lose lose, but it's also, I mean, I, we need more politicians willing to stand on principle even if it's principles i disagree with so it's i think it's a bit of a bummer that they they back down no and that's because that's the game that's always played is we need to support Mm -hmm. the party you know we need to you know accept the accept the loss now for the greater good it's always the greater good you know what i mean it's always well let's worry about the next election make the sacrifices now and then after the next election, we can do what we want. But the reality yes. is, is there's always another election. And so that argument always stands. And so it's always a place for, for compromise, you know. And this is just one more area where the convoluted mess of a system we have on the national level is the way that it is. You know, and that's yes. one of those reasons. Yes, no, that's well said. I That's absolutely right. Because if you don't... Any particular hill you look at to die on in the short run is a terrible hill to die on. But if you never pick a hill to die on, if you never take a stand and say here and no further, mm-hmm. you will lose forever. Mm-hmm. You really will lose forever. And that's what, that's what anybody with an actual theory of politics right now has been losing forever on both sides mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they always get sucked into that game. They've never been able to have a, a large enough faction and never been able to stand their ground in the face of opposition. They have failed to make their case to the people. You can look at, depending on which which group and which circumstance, you know, you can try and pin the reason down in different ways. But ultimately, a stand must be made and a case must be made directly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Playing this political game of where you're, you're, you're half telling the truth and where you're compromising to, uh, to play the political game will never take you in a line. It'll never take you consistently in a direction towards anything, really. It's how you get our public education system and our and our budgeting issues and our like all of this is like 
Like if you, you sent a drunk man and you told him to run in a straight line, mm-hmm. that's our government, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's haphazard at best. Um, and the democratic factions are really interesting. If you, if you, you could divide them more into to three instead of into two. Uh, the progressive caucus and everybody else is how it's been right now. Um, but I heard the breakdown this way that I think is pretty effective. There's the Progressive Caucus, but that's not that's not the group you would I probably rightfully label the progressives. You have moderates, progressives, and then, for lack of a better word, this when I heard it, they called them extremists. Extremist is always a relative term that's derogatory to someone beyond you, right? It's it's not it's not a fact. No, and, and I and I wouldn't and I don't like the the term extremist. I would call no, them uh, I don't either principled progressives. You know, principled that, progressives, that you have, maybe maybe socialists, even maybe because you have you have people like like Bernie Sanders or AOC and 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 her squad who didn't vote for the, mm-hmm. the infrastructure bill. You know, there's an example of someone who's actually doing what they're saying they're going to do, and they may not actually differ on policy, but rather on how much they're committed to that policy, which is mm-hmm. which you could label as extreme, but there's just so much. There's. <laughs> People love labeling the other party as extremes, you know, the extreme <laughs> right and the extreme left as as the boogeyman. And I I I would prefer for our discussion, Dan, if we veered away from that, because I don't want to play I that concur. game. I concur. I uh, concur. How do you uh, – the principled progressives is fine. Uh, uh, most of the – at least the public ones, the ones that are well-known, are socialists and pretty openly socialist. Mm-hmm. True socialists yeah. in the sense of they they – They've accepted a theory of the way the world works and that socialism has a set of principles that they try and judge policy by. Yeah, I'm fine and with I think that. They're, we'll, we'll call them socialists for our purposes. All right. So you have, the, you have the socialists. You have AOC, Bernie Sanders, and company. And they're at least a fraction of the, of the progressive caucus here that was pushing back. They may, they may be the entirety of it. I don't know uh, how many people would actually fit into this category. But one of the benefits of being at an extreme is that you can pull everybody else towards you. If you will hold your ground, you can move people towards you. And that's what they do. They, uh, they, they, <laughs> they may do it better or worse. No, and that's what, <laughs> that's what Bernie Sanders did during the, the, you know, the, the, the run up to the, the presidential, presidential election. Yeah, yes. He pulled Biden towards him in order for Biden to, to, to absorb his, his caucus, his faction. Yes, if you're a minority and you're a uh, a principled minority, can pull everybody else towards them just by holding their ground, because they will persuade some people mm-hmm. and they will move mm-hmm. the party in that direction. They just got to hold their ground, and they almost never do. Um. So that's and that's kind of an overview of. Uh, oh wait, that's so, so you got the socialists. That's kind of an overview. I've talked about one group of three. That's all you need, and we're we're done here. <laughs> then you have the progressives. The progressives traditionally. As I, I mentioned, they stemmed out of the, the Republican Party initially. Eventually, you get people like uh, like FDR is basically a progressive, LBJ. Um, the progressives essentially want – they see themselves as, as a kind of moderate place between the socialists and, uh, and more traditional views. They accept some of the socialist stuff, and they're, but they're much more – well, they're much more pragmatic mm-hmm. per se. It's how they would probably describe themselves. Um, 
And I think this actually does capture Biden pretty well. Well, I would say it cap it captures Biden more recently. I yes. think yes. I think that Biden adopt Biden moved into that progressive category kind of midway through the election because of Bernie Sanders. Because because I believe that I believe that Biden truly truly is a moderate democrat and that he went into that campaign with very little um policy ambition. I mean, I think he ran because he wanted to become president and he didn't really care about what he was going to do as president. I know this is very cynical, but welcome to Brad. Um <laughs> But but in order to win, he adopted more of that progressive mantra, 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 and he's carried it with him as president. I think that's fair. Yeah, I I like that. I think that's I think that's perfectly fair. Um, When you're when you're minority, uh, because AOC and Bernie Sanders are are fairly loud as as far as they they punch way above their weight in terms of of how many people they seem to actually be able to yeah their influence is represent. impressive but their influence with the common common people is very high is much higher and it, at least the minority that they represent is extremely loud mm-hmm. extremely loud and that makes them uh that gives them more power than perhaps they would otherwise um Yes, I think I think that's a good assessment of Biden. So Biden right now with his policies, I think represents a kind of uh progressive uh faction. Then you have the moderates, the true moderates, and the moderates are much harder to pin down on what they are. <laughs> but they really anybody in the Democratic Party to the right of the progressives who would fall into this category and the the standard bearers right now is is it Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin for sure. I don't remember the other name of the. There's another one mm-hmm. who occasionally votes against it. You know, holds up the whole thing. Um, and there's probably more people. Right, this is something of a scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but the, but those are the factions, and the Democratic factions usually work really well together. They usually work as a, a fairly unified way. Um, so you don't see them very often. This is this may be the only time I'm aware of in recent history where the the factions were really clear with these two bills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where you where you had where there was so on, much butting against each other. Yes, you had you had the group who you have the progressives who would pass both if they could, but are willing to pass one. Mm-hmm. You have the moderates who will only pass one. And you have the uh, the socialists who, who the socialists want both, who who will need only both. accept both, who need both. Yeah, yeah. And underneath this, there are some, you know, some philosophical differences, some real differences in a vision of what of of American rights and of economic theory and so on. But those are those are really underplayed. Uh, I think a lot of the Whereas the Republican news likes to spend a lot of time on principle, or at least relatively more time on at least the surface level of their principles, <laughs> they, they, uh, the Democrats don't tend to do that. They tend to talk mostly about how to just how to do things to help other people, and you know they don't they don't spend a lot of time weighing costs and benefits so much. Well, what I what I think is really interesting, Dan, is that this is basically the opposite of what we what we discussed 
a few months ago talking about yes. what would happen because we talked about the two Republican factions, the Trump faction and the non-Trump faction, and about how divisive those were in the Republican Party, which was absolutely true. You know, I stand by everything that we said, even though we were yes. we were in many ways wrong. Um, yeah, we were afraid they would never be able to unite. And that you'd have this united, and and yeah, and so and so, what we were seeing is you have you have these these Democrats who are who are united and working together under Biden, who are who just need to not fumble the ball, who just need to move forward as a united front and let the Republican Party splinter beneath them. And instead, mm-hmm. what happened is you've got the Republicans who are able to get past their Trump differences and unite, and I think in large part. Um, they were able to do that because of of the the rising tide of of the woke movement, as it's described. That that's something they were able to band together against, combined with some of the things that that Biden has done, in particular Afghanistan and some other stuff, has really helped uh, crystallize what they were fighting against. And the Republicans have actually banded together surprisingly well. I don't think that will last. You know, and I, I think it could. It, I think in three years we're going to see that that faction reemerge between Trump and non-Trump, especially if Trump runs. If Trump runs, that faction is going to be night and day, and could be it could be devastating. But in the meantime, what you have is you have united Republican front and a somewhat splintered Democratic front. At least for the past few months, the Democrats have really struggled, and that's really shown. And it's it's the opposite of what I thought would happen. And it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I think you're absolutely right that uh, in part this has be- happened because Bernie Sanders and company actually have power now and actually have leverage and are actually trying to use that to move the party mm-hmm. more in their direction. Um, but you're right that like. And they're right. This is the time to do it. This is, when the, you have this is the a good power. time to do it. Yeah. 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 We mentioned it. We, we'd predicted that when Biden got into office, he would do almost nothing. And that has been true. That has been definitely true. The, in terms of actual changes beyond the things that can be undone day one of a new president, you know, he'd just write an executive order and say all the other executive orders are over. Beyond those things, Biden has accomplished almost nothing. But I did not expect him to fumble so hard on some of these other things, right? To, to actually create problems for himself. Um, with the, the vaccine, not declaring victory over COVID, right? He could have said, good job, everybody go home. Like, back to, <laughs> back to it. It was not hard. It wasn't a difficult thing to ask of him. Um, he could have said with Afghanistan, like the last several presidents, okay, having looked at it closer, this is going to be a nightmare and it's going to be really bad if we pull out. We'll just, We'll just continue doing what we've done. Mm-hmm. Right? It, was, it was ironically, he took this principled stand where he was like, no. And, uh, and boy, did it backfire. Like the, he just, the other things is the, uh, like you were saying with the, the woke culture type stuff, the cultural war things have gotten a lot of attention in the schooling and things. There's, there's a real pushback against schools in particular and a push towards things like homeschooling and alternatives because in part because of COVID staying at home mm-hmm, and in part mm-hmm. because of just the, uh, the other uh, cultural stuff at stake there. 
And, um, and I, I realized I, I missed one more thing that has really united Republicans that needs to be it. mentioned. And I, I feel stupid for not mentioning it earlier because it's such a big deal. Biden ran on a campaign of unification since becoming president, and particularly in COVID. He has started to wage – you talked about how he could have declared victory over COVID because <laughs> you got the vaccine rolling out. You know, you've got – so many measures in place that are going to make things better in general, right? But instead, what he said is it is failing, and it is failing because of the unvaccinated who are conservatives. And he started waging a political war against conservatives specifically. And, And that has really irked many, many conservatives I mean, because why wouldn't it? Because they're they are now getting blamed for everything. It is now all their fault. It is all the unvaccinated's fault for all of these things that are happening. And it is mm-hmm. all the conservative states that are struggling and the conservative states who are at fault and never the the blue states and and different things like that that have that I think have cost Biden politically. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that has mm-hmm. really pissed off conservatives. For good yeah, reason. In, yes. And and not just conservatives, but any independent who's against it and a variety of Democrats. Uh, some of the Democratic factions are as against some of the traditional voting or recent voting blocks of the Democratic Party uh, who they depend on, uh, like black adults, are not nearly as in line with the uh, their their vaccine hesitancy is comparable to Republican vaccine hesitancy, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a bad sign if, they, if that's become the, the hill that Biden, Biden wants, wants to, to die on. Because, die because on. Biden thought that, that he had the vast majority of the country on his side. You know what I mean? That yeah. he was going to come out and say, this is the unvaccinated fault and we need to mandate vaccines. And that the vast majority of everyone would be like, rah, rah, we agree. And they weren't. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, they weren't, we, uh, we found some interesting data on that the other day, uh, where like, if you do a, if you break it down by education and you say of, you know, what percent of people in various educational categories don't, you know, are vaccine hesitant, they're, they're worried about it or they're, you know, adamantly opposed to it in some way they're against Yeah, there's some kind of hesitancy. Hesitancy covers a large range of different things. Yeah, the uh, the largest ratio in terms of education, the largest percentage of an educational category is actually PhDs at at 23%. 23% of people with PhDs are vaccine hesitant, which is the the largest fact, you know, largest uh, ratio. It's like of the next largest is a high school or less. And they're at 20%. But it's, it's funny because people will say it's the uneducated, right? It's the uneducated people who are afraid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but, that's, but there's actually a, a greater portion of the most educated people are vaccine hesitant than the least educated people, which is – and it's interesting if you look at the numbers. It's the middle where there's the most approval for the vaccine, where there's the, the least, least vaccine, vaccine hesitancy. Hesitant. It's people with bachelors and uh, – and masters. <laughs> That's the group that are like, yeah, this is all good. The PhDs are like, wait a second. 
<laughs> Wait a second. We read data. <laughs> and the uh, the others are like, the yeah, anyway, it's, it's interesting. It's funny that it's the middle education that is the most. You could, you could joke that that's it's the people who've just, just been indoctrinated enough, but not so much that they can actually look into it themselves. Uh, that's funny. That's funny and incredibly offensive to 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 not <laughs> to only people, people with... <laughs> who have a middle level of education, which is of course probably a good chunk of our listeners, but also people who aren't vaccine hesitant, who are also a good chunk of our <laughs> listeners. So, fantastic job, Dan! Congratulations. I'm I'm happy and to. You are welcome offend. to email us and and just vent your frustrations at, we, at Dan. We there. accept hate mail at rethinkingpolitics at gmail dot com. Yep, yep, yep. Email us. Let us know what you think of us. Be happy to hear it. <laughs> As as someone who has a bachelor's degree and is vaccine hesitant, <laughs> see it. And Dan's over there; he's just dreaming of that PhD so he can fit into that twenty three percent. Oh, stop! <laughs> um. <laughs> so, uh, where were we? We were looking at factions. We were looking at democratic factions in particular. Um, this breakdown is. What does this mean for the future? Well, we'll see, because they got in line now, right? They passed the one bill. They took the bitter pill, at least enough of them to pass it. And they're moving forward, and we'll see what happens with their ability to unite in the future. And we'll see if maybe there's some kind of saving uh, disaster that makes Biden look good. Mm -hmm. Trump looked extremely good. Up until COVID. Right up until the last year, mm -hmm. right up until COVID. And then it was like everything looked really bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, without that, he probably gets elected in a landslide. Oh, yeah. Um, just because the economy was extremely good. Um, but one of the things that I keep hearing about that drives me crazy, Brad, is the <laughs> is well, there's a lot of those things. Well, yeah, you, this only one, one thing. Huh? <laughs> this, this one, the one right now that I keep hearing, it doesn't drive me crazy. It's just odd to me. I hear a lot of democratic thinkers, uh, not Democrats per se, by, by part, you know, they're not party maybe, maybe liberal thinkers, liberal. Yeah. Thinkers who are more, more in that category, but independent thinkers, uh, people that we recommend listening to mm -hmm. often Weinstein, Barry Weiss and others. When they try and assess the Republican party and the factions within the Republican party, I think they do an extraordinarily bad job. I, I don't think they have any idea where the lines are within the Republican Party and where and what. Usually what they're doing is they're looking at the Republican Party and they're assessing the threat of an authoritarian takeover. Right? If you were to look on the, if you were look at the, the, the groups that we were just talking about, if Bernie Sanders were in charge it would absolutely be <laughs> an authoritarian takeover that redefined so much of our politics. Yeah, yeah, and not just if he were president, but if he actually had had yes, real yes. power. Yes, if his ideas were implemented right, mm -hmm. if he if they were able to get a, a large majority. Yeah, it would be a, um, it would be a radical socialist government that would become very very different from what we have now. There'd be major yeah. major changes to everyday life. Yeah, yeah and the Progressive Party ends up moving in that direction at a very slow and meandering pace mm -hmm. but it, but it, but it'd be nothing like the real thing right this is this is a 
there's there is a big difference between what we have in actual socialism or or full scale socialism. Um, in particular industries, we kind of have it already. In others, it's mess. But anyway, but the full scale socialism would look very different. Um, and people, I hear Barry Weiss in particular lately was talking about this, where she was like, you know what? I'm worried that all of this talk about race from Democrats is going to lead to a much more authoritarian backlash and rise of real racism. Mm-hmm. A, a, a pushback from people who are white, who feel like they're under, you know, they're being threatened and that that will kind of coalesce into a, an identity group that, that is large enough and, and determined enough to, to, to introduce a, a, something of a fascist element, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. kind of uh, racially driven fascism. Um, and I understand why that's the fear. Yeah, and, and, and there, are, there are things that, that explain that fear. I mean, I, Trump is a great example of that because Trump uh-huh. is politically incorrect. He is, he is uh, you know, xenophobic at least. Um, I, I would argue, <laughs> yeah. I would argue that he is racist. You know, yeah, I, we talked about this a little bit. He's a, he's xenophobic for sure, probably racist, depending on how you draw the line. Yeah, he's definitely made racist comments at the very least. Yes, yes depending on yes. how you define racism, et cetera, et cetera. But he's he's in that spectrum. He's in that range. You know what I mean? That you can mm-hmm. you can label mm-hmm. him a racist without people being like, what? You know what I mean? Yeah, without without having to completely redefine racism mm-hmm. and take it in the modern. Yeah, and in a more classic sense, he's definitely he's definitely somewhere in that range. Anyways, but you've got you've got Trump who gets elected as this true backlash to political correctness in all of its forms. And so it would make sense for someone like Barry Weiss to say, you know, what if we have a worse version of that as a response to this worst, ver- this worst version of political correctness, you know, which which wokeness kind of is, you know, it's this much more extreme version of political correctness that's much yeah. more severe. So, what happens when you get an even harsher pushback that makes Trump look like, you know, a pansy? Yes, yes, and especially if you're one of those people who believes that Trump secretly was that person already. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're one of those people who bought into the idea that Trump really intended to, or even if Trump wasn't, that there was a, a an extreme group who voted yeah. for Trump, that inside the Trump supporters there is this xenophobic, racist core that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would support an authoritarian candidate who would, you know, oppress minorities again and get back to old school racism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. There's there's a variety of ways you could get to this point where you're looking at the Republican party, party, the Republican Barbie. (laughs) I don't know how I threw a B in there. The the Democratic Ken. (laughs) This is the beginning of a bad sitcom. Not that there's necessarily a beginning to good ones, but... (laughs) Um. And it helps that there's a historical example too, right? You've you've got the World War II, you've got uh, the Nazis is mm-hmm. most the most common bad guy 
of recent decades <laughs> is the is the kind of Nazi idea, the mm-hmm. idea of a racially driven authoritarian fascist group. Um, no, and it's something that's been pushed for a long time that there is within Trump supporters that group, the white supremacists, mm-hmm. the neo Nazis. You know. Mm-hmm. And if you if you take the new definitions of racism, which we've talked about at length, and which are entirely without merit, um, you can see how you can get there. But but again, that's not going to get you to a Nazi who's the, the classical view of racism of like, no, this race is inferior and needs to go. Um, but however you get, uh, whatever the case is, when that, that is in my mind, I've, I've associated with Republicans at all kinds of levels, um, up close and personal, no several of them personally, you know, I you know have several Republicans. <laughs> Wow. You must really get around. I really get out there. I know. It's hard to believe I found some in Texas. (laughs) You grew up in Idaho. You're living in Texas. I meant Republican like officials. Several Republicans. Thank you for clarifying. I know officials and fundraisers and lobbyists. And there, there is exactly zero chance of there ever being a significant enough group in the next several decades for that to ever be a threat. There, there was, there was, in my, my estimation, zero chance that Trump stayed in office after losing, and imposed a new authoritarian dictatorship. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was a pipe dream from start to finish, and and if you think otherwise, I think it's because you don't know enough Republicans. Mm-hmm. Go, no, go and, and, some and, Republicans, I, and I would add that that argument that there's that xenophobic core. To Trump supporters is fictitious. There, is. it's not. It's not true. Sure, there are white supremacists. There are xenophobes. There are neo Nazis who are Trump supporters, mm-hmm. but they are in no way significant to that group. You know that that yes. that, that that the more Trump supporters you meet, and you know you can you can find interviews where you know you've got reporters who are. Wandering through Trump rallies, you know, trying to find <laughs> yeah. the those the one those guy. extremists, and they do. They have to find the one guy who's there who's actually believes those things because everyone else, they're just normal people. Yeah, yeah. You go to a Republican event if you're if you're terrified about this, and go look for yourself. Use your own eyes, uh, and and you'll find. Go talk to people. You'll find that they're ordinary people. Um, Yes, a lot of them really love Trump. They mm-hmm. were absolutely <laughs> thrilled about Trump at a level that's, yeah, and, that's and, surprising. And all, all I ask is try not to hold that against them, you know? <laughs> and there was, there was, you could say, an element of populism in his appeal. Mm-hmm. But again, none of that, none of that sets up the Republican Party to be accepting of a dictator. Mm-hmm. It's just not, that aspect just isn't there. It's not there. There's no... The faintest whiffs of it are at the very edges, and and they, it just wouldn't be accepted. You would have ninety percent, you know, ninety to ninety nine percent of the Republicans against it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. not a good sign, <laughs> right? For the success of no, of and, this would be in reality. What you have with with the Republican Party is that most actual Republicans, most people who are Republicans are more in, fra- in favor of free market and libertarian ideas than the politicians 
who they vote for and that those politicians who they vote for have to give a large amount of lip service and be very careful to not alienate themselves from that from that voting block by being very careful about what they support and how they support it, depending on how it's being portrayed. And that's what Dan's saying, where if they got a a whiff of true authoritarianism, the actual Republicans themselves would never, would never stand for it. Right. Right. Now, all of that is not to say the Republicans are the squeaky clean side of this. They're not. And like you were saying, as you were alluding to there, there's a massive amount of the political show is not meant for to make your opponents look bad. It's meant to make you look good to your <laughs> to your <laughs> constituents. Um, there is an authoritarian faction within the Republicans. Now, I think they're relatively small, but I think they are getting bigger. And I think they're getting bigger in response to the woke things and these, these other things. I think there actually is a what you might describe as an authoritarian movement through the Republicans right now. Now I think it's I think right now it's actually not at a level where it's a threat. Um, but it could be in the future. And if there were to be an authoritarian takeover from the Republicans, I would guess that it comes from this faction. And it's the common good conservatives. If you were to divide the Republican Party, I, I didn't write down specific factions, but you'd have you'd probably have a kind of a, a libertarian wing. Um, who are not necessarily conservative, but <laughs> they're not necessarily Republican in any useful sense, but they're closer to a but, Republican talking But they usually end up points. voting Republican. Yes, yes. There, there are very few liberals who are running primarily on the things in which the libertarians would want them to push, mm-hmm. um, whereas occasionally a Republican will run on specific things that libertarians do want pushed. So it's a, it's a... If you were to actually map it out in a, you know, kind of graph out where they fit in the political order, they're, they're not necessarily on the right or the left. Um, but they happen to align with the parties a little bit more because the Republicans are a little less authoritarian generally. They're a little, uh, a little more faith in markets and things like that. Um, the common good, there's the, so there's a kind of a libertarian faction. There's a, uh, there's the natural rights conservatives. This is the bread and butter of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. This is the by far the largest group. They they accept the founding and the principles of the founding, and and have a kind of religious patriotic zeal for it. Um, those who are really into it. Um, but that's they they draw on the principles of natural rights and a small government. Mm-hmm. And then you have the common good conservatives. And the common good conservatives are odd allies of the natural rights conservatives. They're, they're, they don't actually have that much in common other than their opposition to the left. Mm-hmm. They don't like the progressives. They don't like the mo- – they, they have more in common with the moderates. Yeah, I was about to say they, they don't dislike the moderates. Yeah. They dislike the progressives and especially the socialists. Yeah, and they, their disagreements with the moderates are that the moderates are often comfortable with cultural issues that the common good conservatives are not. The common good conservatives, uh, some of the most prominent ones, uh, draw their ideas, their political ideology from Catholicism. And there's a, they're, they're pragmatic when it comes to markets and government spending and things like that. They don't have any principled line where they say, 
this is the limit of government. Mm -hmm. They they discard the theory of natural rights. They reject it. There is no uh, fundamental natural rights that the government can't violate. And what they do instead is they go, the government must act for the common good, and the common good is a cultural conservatism. It's bad for the common good that people can, <laughs> I don't know, it's always one of the ones that, that, that they're, they're big on the drug war, right? The drug war is a uh, common good conservative view. It's not good for people to take drugs. Mm-hmm. Let's stop Let's them stop from taking then. drugs. Yeah. It's not good for people to gamble. Let's stop them from gambling. It's not good for people to do all kinds of things. And you can see how an, an ordinary Republican voter probably is conservative culturally. And, te- and may be persuaded to vote for these kind of things, right? To vote for someone who will impose these things. But this is a... Uh, well, and, and, and are- often the conservatives that I run into, they're not diametrically opposed to, to drugs the way the common good conservative is. They're not like, yeah, drugs are the biggest problem right now. But because they don't believe that drugs are good and that doing drugs is bad and the people they know and interact with don't do drugs they let it slide. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't care enough to oppose it. And so the candidates that they vote for who are common, good conservatives and who are, who are running anti-drug, they don't mind that. You know what I mean? Because they're more concerned about the issues that they care about, like, you know, other issues. And so they let Uh it slide rather than actually being in favor of it. Yes. That's, that's a great point. Um, and if you confronted them about it, uh, often they accept it as part of kind of the Republican stance yeah. is to be against drugs. But then you, you can show them that, wait, 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 your natural rights ideas are incompatible with this moral imposition on people <laughs> to do this. And then they have to find arguments that, uh, about things like, well, it increases crime and it's a, you know, it gets into this gray area where, uh, they're much less comfortable. Um, but this group, this group looks at these, at the problems that are going on in schools, and they don't say, stop teaching my kids, you know, stop, stop with the, the letting people go into whichever bathroom they identify with the gender of, um, and stop teaching my kids uh, race essentialism and critical race theory stuff. A natural rights conservative will say, stop doing that. A common good conservative will say, stop doing that, and here's the solution. We need to teach our kids better values in schools. Mm-hmm. Right? We need to go in there and educate them with the things that will help them see in the future that these things are wrong and that they shouldn't allow these things to happen. It's not just a, the negative natural rights theory. It's a positive theory of government coming in and training up good citizens mm-hmm. who have the right values and have the right ideas. And it makes for it, it's it's authoritarian. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it can easily it can easily fall into authoritarianism. You know, there's there's not when you compare the common good conservatives and the socialists, they actually become very similar because they're both trying to build the world up in their image. Their images are just different. Which yes, is why yes. both of them tends towards authoritarianism because neither of them have an issue with using government to achieve, to achieve their vision of how they want the world to be. And those, and those are the groups that, that at least me personally, I'm worried about. 
are the common yes. good conservatives and the socialists. Yeah, yeah, both of them are frightening. Um, even though I have <laughs> I have respect for the the idealism of both, if they you know even it's sincerely believed and, and they hold their ground, but it's but in terms of practice and what it would do to the world, they're terrifying. There is something to be said for the fact that at least the pragmatic people screw things up on a relatively small scale. <laughs> it takes a true believer to really destroy everything. Um, yeah, if you want to see these people firsthand, if you want to see this, this factional split in the Republican Party, go watch the Daily Wire backstage. Yeah. We'll, throw, we'll, we'll link one for you. Um, ben Shapiro is the most famous of the Daily Wire, uh, but he's, he's one of a handful of 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 major, you know, top tier uh, political pundits, mm-hmm. and he, and they aim to be the face of the new Republican Party, the next generation, and they're succeeding. I think. I think they're yeah, they they're pretty much there. Yeah, they have a lot of influence, and and uh, and they main they aim to replace Fox News in a lot of ways, and to uh, and to throw out the old vanguard of Republicans, and they're very conscious of this divide. Ben Shapiro being a natural rights conservative. And uh, their names escape me. Matt Walsh and uh, I think it's Knowles. Knowles, Michael Knowles, mm-hmm. are common good conservatives. And when they're talking amongst themselves, you know, when they're talking about Democrats, it may sound like they're on the sim- same page. They're not when they talk with each other, about which what they, they do in the Daily Wire backstage. Uh huh. Yeah, you'll hear Ben Shapiro being like, "Leave us alone," and then you'll hear Michael Knowles being like, "No, we have to seize the political power." And we have to use it. We have to use it. Like we've we've been too afraid to use political power, to actually wield political power to do what would be good for the people. <laughs> and if you can't hear the authoritarianism in that, right? If that, yeah, and it's, that, uh, it's, it's a little bit creepy. It is a little creepy. And that group will get more influential as the other groups fail, right? As, as the cultural war is lost, Apparently, under the leadership of the natural rights conservatives, who are the biggest faction, right? More people may say, they're right. We've been too afraid to use the political power to really teach people the right values and help them see the right way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts? <laughs> uh, we've talked about a lot of a lot of things we've covered here, Dan. a lot of ground covered a lot of ground and I don't, I don't know how to wrap this up with a nice bow you know <laughs> from the the infrastructure to the the osea mandate to uh to all of this you didn't even laugh at my joke i i i wasn't going to the osea <laughs> leave me alone all right I won't. I won't. I need to wield government power to teach you what's good, Dan. That's right. You should mandate classes on. You you could, it'd be like the state thing where you sing the states and state capitals, but you sing the agencies and what they stand for. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Uh, the song would go forever and we would never be sure if you got them all. Well, I think that the last thing I want to say is that we've talked about, you know, these, these authoritarian threats, but we're not we're not up at night worrying about these threats because most likely what's going to happen is we're going to continue with this drunken man wandering down the street. The problem is is this drunken man is really not good for anyone. It's not good for the 
It's not good for the common good conservatives. It's not good for the socialists. It's not good for for everyone else, including us. It's it's really not. And and at some point, we're going to have to make a change to fundamental systems in this country if we're going to have anything better at all. Yeah, I I feel like if there's one that is growing in popularity that could change, it might be to change to uh, proportional representation rather than a rather than first past the post mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where that's where you get seats according to the percent your basically the percentage of what you've voted for. You might also get ranked voting. Um, we've mentioned both those before, but those are, those are things to look into and that we'll probably talk again about in the future. But those are things that I see Democrats proposing now, you know, people, people like us who are sitting a little bit outside of the mainstream of, of any political party and who are trying to assess this, it sounds like a lot of us are all coming to those same conclusions on those issues. So maybe that's something that could get a bipartisan movement. Yeah, bipartisan to, agreement that what we have now is not working. Yeah. Yeah, and, and change some of those things. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.